0: chapter 11 this morning. I always love when a pastor gets up and says, if you're visiting with us, you are so welcome today. No one else is, but you visitors, we're glad you're here. I'm really glad you're all here this morning. And I hope that what we're going to talk about will will we'll truly hit you where you are and will touch your heart, give you something to chew on and think about. We've prayed this now a couple of times this morning that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, what the world calls the Easter story, this is something celebrated every day in the life of a follower of Jesus. It's something we live by. It's something we, we cling to and it's not a false hope. It's a real hope that gives us joy in, in the worst of circumstances and in the best. And when we come to days like this, this Easter Sunday, I, I want to celebrate all the more, but, but no differently than, than any other time. And yet for, for many people, this is the only time during the year where there's a pause and, and even a willingness to, I don't know, go to church, uh, maybe acknowledge perhaps something to this story. Some will sit and question it all the more. And when I think about what this truly means to me, there's nothing more important I can tell you than what I'm gonna tell you this morning. Nothing matters more. I know there's a lot going on in all of our lives. And in fact, if we wanna sit down and start writing out lists, I'm sure we could spend the rest of the day making lists of to-dos and and wants and desires and needs and and, and questions and and challenges in our lives. And we we could fill up the day just looking at ourselves. And I ask you to stop just for a few minutes. Don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this he asks? Lord I do and not because I have some special insight other than you have given me the ability Lord to trust you. I I believe you Lord for years and years now, having heard this story again and again, for me, Lord, it is not a story. This is history, this is truth. And what happened on that foul weekend when you went to the cross, Lord, I don't remember it because it emotionally moves me. It does, Lord, but I remember it because the weekend did not end with you on the cross and it did not end with you in the grave. And I declare with absolute assurance this morning, your resurrection. What's ironic, Lord Jesus, is we are talking to you right now because you resurrected. Otherwise, these would be empty words. But I know you hear me because I know you rose and I know I will see you again. And Lord, this hope has carried me through my life. I thank you for that. I thank you for the amazing, the living hope, as your word calls it, that that carries so many who believe in you. Father, we're living in a culture right now that has turned its back on you and is not listening and is not paying attention, a culture that is pursuing hollow efforts and an empty direction, a culture that is not considering what happens after we die. I thank you, Lord, that you considered it before we even began to live. And I ask that you will pour out this hope among us this morning. We listen and we ask you to teach us, you to give us your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I I have said this actually many times over the years, it's a favorite saying of mine, Jesus never met a funeral he didn't interrupt. (laughs) Jesus did not like funerals, he was not in for funerals, he did not enjoy funerals. If he had to go to one, he went late. And when there was one coming out, he stopped it or, or prevented it from even happening. Think about this in Mark chapter five, the daughter of a synagogue leader named Yaris, she died. And so he came to Jesus. My daughter is sick and, and got Jesus. And they're heading to the house. When someone comes and says, don't bother him anymore, she's dead. Jesus said, just, just trust me, is my paraphrase. And they head on over to Yaris' house and the thing about the death of this daughter was she was only a few minutes dead by the time Jesus got there. So perhaps he just revived her. Maybe she really wasn't dead, you know? They call it a resurrection. Well, you believers would, but but maybe she just she just swooned. And so he he gets in there and, and he he wakes her up and she revives, and they say, Oh, look, it's a miracle. But it really wasn't. It was just a revival there. Okay, then there was the widow's son coming out of the city of Nain as Jesus and his disciples are coming into the city. Here comes a funeral procession. The man is in his coffin. He's being carried to his burial tomb. That's pretty dead. And Jesus touched the casket and the dude popped up. (laughs) Resurrected. He was at least 24 hours dead because, by Jewish reckoning, you needed to have the body in the tomb within 24 hours. So, this guy had been dead a while. Well, but people have, you know, isn't it amazing how, when people don't want to believe, how easily they explain things away? A few minutes dead. 24 hours dead, but just to put to rest anyone's doubts about the first two, Lazarus was stinking dead. And I choose that word specifically because he was smelling bad. He was four days in the grave, wrapped like a mummy, interred in a dark, dismal tomb. In John chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days. Again, and you can write this in your margins, stinking dead. (laughs) And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Pause for a moment. This is the moment in the movie where I'm turning on the light. Can you imagine the experience of the people standing around there? This strange moment when Jesus says, roll back the stone, and they're, and they're incredulous. They're like, come on, four days. Come on, this is crazy. What's he doing? He, he's, this is, everybody's gonna be unclean. This is not okay. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And there's a pause, a moment where everybody's holding their breath. And here he comes. That would creep me out. <laughs> Wrapped up, shuffling out of this tomb, alive. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. See, so he had been bound by death. Jesus already had unbound him from death, but he says, Take these wrappings off him, set him free, because you know Lazarus is in there going, mm. Eh, eh, eh. And Jesus resurrected him. Now we're gonna cover that whole story on Wednesday night. It's a fantastic story. If you wanna hear it, come back Wednesday and listen. But Jesus dismisses this demise. It's what he does. God is no respecter of death. And you need to understand that because many people in our world do not. God is no respecter of death, be it within days or decades, hours or ages, minutes or millennia, God says in Ezekiel 18, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. In each case in the gospels, Jesus interrupted death for life. He even interrupted his own. I mean, that's awesome. He never met a funeral he didn't interrupt and he wants to interrupt yours. On a holiday that I think is in peril, especially in this culture of becoming as hollow as chocolate bunnies. And I hated those, by the way. First of all, they tasted bad. But secondly, you get this big, honking chocolate rabbit and you pull it out of the package and you take your first bite and there's nothing inside. It's like, what a waste. I want solid chocolate. Give me the whole thing. No, no, big hollow thing. And that's how many people are Approaching Easter, it's a hollow day. Doesn't really have meaning. Scatter about the eggs, give out the baskets, go to brunch. And then Monday comes and nothing has changed. That's a hollow day. Well, I interrupt this Easter with this salient truth and note this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only central to Christian faith, it is the only hope for life. There is no other hope. There is no other way. If you're sitting there saying, well, perhaps after I die, I'll find out and it'll be okay. No, it won't. Perhaps maybe, you know, if I've done enough good in my life, then after I die, if all this Christian stuff is true or all that Jewish stuff is true or all that Muslim stuff is true or that Hindu stuff or that Buddhist stuff, maybe then something will happen. You will be sorely disappointed There is one hope, there is one way, there is one absolute assurance that when you die, your funeral will be interrupted or your burial will be interrupted or possibly you may not die at all. One hope, and his name is Jesus. He is our living hope. For centuries, critics have tried to interrupt this hope. Critics down through the years have tried to interrupt the accounts of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection by claiming storyline irregularities. Never wondered about this. Inconsistencies from one telling of the resurrection of Jesus to another. See, again, it amazes me how the critic, the person who does not want to believe, works really hard to try to dismiss God, to try to get this whole issue out of the way so they can just live their life I don't know about you, but I don't want to just live my life. It's that old, that old question, the person who's about to graduate high school and go to college and his dad says, hey, so what do you want to do after you graduate high school? I'm going to college, dad. Great, what are you going to do after that? Oh, I'm going to graduate college. Great, son. What are you going to do after that? Oh, I'm going to get a job. Awesome. And then what are you going to do? Well, then I'm gonna get married. Hey, fantastic. Then what? I'm gonna have kids. Fantastic. Then what? Well, then, you know, I'll raise them and they'll do the same thing. Wonderful. Then what? Then I'll have grandkids. What are you getting at, Dad? Then what? Then what? Well, I guess I'll die. Then what? Gotta think beyond now. Gotta get beyond this life. But... One writer called the differences in the gospels seemingly intractable discrepancies. Now, if you've studied this, you know, but I'm going to tell you this morning, and we'll look at them real quickly. There are five eyewitness accounts of Jesus resurrected in the Bible. Many more people saw him resurrected, but there are five who, who wrote it down, and we now have it contained in Scripture. And you know what? We got to be honest, these five accounts do differ in various ways. So let's think about this. If you'll look in your Bibles, flip over a couple of books, three books to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, where we come to the first account, at least in the chronology of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 28, verse one. Now after Shabbat, As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came up and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. (laughs) He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Verse seven, go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And they left the tomb and quickly uh, with fear and great joy, they ran to report it to his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will all win him over and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story has been widely spread among the Jews to this day, Matthew writes. But... The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubting or doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Lest anyone think that the disciples got their heads together to pull a fast one. It's interesting that Matthew already lets us know that this idea was cooked up by the chief priests, that they stole the body. They got in there and stole the body. These fearful, running like sheep disciples came back in the morning, overcame a Roman guard, rolled back the stone, got the body out, and made for the hills. Tell that story. The chief priests paid off the Romans to tell and that was the story that was told as a deceit. What's really interesting about that story is you know what it proves? It proves that even the Jewish leaders knew that the tomb was empty. Even the critics who who developed this lie, this deceit, could not deny that there was no body in the tomb that morning. So they had to cook up something. Well, skip over to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, one book to the right, beginning in verse one. I just want you to hear the resurrection stories. When Shabbat was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb. When the sun had risen, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He's risen, he's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons and she went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen." And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll pick up serpents. And And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. By the way, all those things happened even before the New Testament was finished. All those things were proven true. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. And no doubt somebody's gonna say, yeah, but Rick, verses nine through 20 are all in parentheses. They're in brackets. And I happen to look at my, my little note in my Bible with the brackets that say later manuscripts add verses nine through 20. And and that's true, that's true. The earliest manuscripts don't have the last part of the resurrection story. They end with verse eight, the the women having seen a man, having gone back, but but no witness, no eyewitness of the resurrection. Here's the thing about that. Let me just put this to rest. A man by the name of Papias In 100 AD, referred to verses 9 through 20 in his writings, which is earlier than even the earliest manuscripts we have of Mark. So we know it was there. We know it was talked about. Well, but keep going. Go on forward. Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I don't know about you, but just reading the resurrection story jazzes me. Luke 24, verse one. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the the, the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene, and Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, and also the other women with them, they were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away. Or The word only there is also by themselves, set aside. And he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, rather than read it all, verses 13 through 35 tell a wonderful story about two men then, two disciples, followers of Jesus, who are on their way to Emmaus, a a walk, a day's journey away from Jerusalem, and as they walk, Jesus shows up, and they don't recognize him, and he walks with them and says, what's up? What's going on? And they're like, haven't you read the news? Aren't you aware of what's taking place, of what happened this weekend, this Jesus was crucified, many of us thought he was the one, but then this morning, unbelievably, some women are saying, we've seen him resurrected, and, and the city's buzz, and we're, we're all just talking about these things, where have you been, man? And Jesus begins to unfold to them and explain to them, those who were slow of heart, what this was all about. And it tells us that he goes all the way back to Moses and the prophets and begins this traveling Bible study with them, explaining to them what the whole thing was. The Hebrew scriptures all leading straight up to his death, burial and resurrection. And then they stop and they invite him to stay too. He was gonna keep going. I really wonder if they hadn't invited him where Jesus would have gone at that point. you know. But he was acted like he was going on, and they said, oh, come and stay with us, it's late. So he goes in, he breaks bread, and the moment he breaks bread, they recognize him and he's out of their sight. He's just gone. So they go rushing back to Jerusalem. Fast as their little feet can carry them, they get back to the room where, where the disciples, the apostles, are gathered. Verse 36, while they were telling these things, that is to the apostles there, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Shalom, it's a good Jewish greeting. Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet? It is I myself, touch me. For you see a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they still could not believe it. And because their joy, because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish. I'm not sure if that'd be the first thing I'd want upon resurrection, but okay. They give him a piece of fish. He took it and he ate it before them. He's showing them, look, I, I, am, I am full body here. Full bodily resurrection. He wasn't a ghostly apparition or a spirit. And he said, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, he says, I'm sending forth the promise of my father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Wow. Now, if we keep going, we would come to John chapter 20. That's the fourth of the witnesses. I'm gonna skip it because I'm gonna save it for a future teaching, hopefully soon, since we're currently in the gospel of John. But least of all, turn now to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we come to the final eyewitness testimony of a resurrected Jesus, the final person who had seen him as an, in an eyewitness account, And he writes of this, and that person is Paul, which is why I say this is the last and the least of the five stories, because that's what Paul says about himself. Watch this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand. So he's writing this letter to a church, a church in Corinth, And he's saying, listen, we've talked about this. This is what your faith is based on. Verse two, he says, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What does that mean, to believe in vain? It's a hollow chocolate bunny, okay? Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you. As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the Twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, which is actually Jacob, and then to all the apostles, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I'm the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He says, if Christ has not been raised, He said, verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. And by the way, this entire service this morning is vain if he has not been raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ Have perished. That is, everyone who's died with faith in Jesus—they're just dead. No interruption to those burials. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, as Jake mentioned, reshit the first fruits. After that, uh, of, of those who are asleep. The first fruits, Jesus raised from the dead. Okay, so did you catch the discrepancies? Were you jotting them down as we went? Let me help you remember them. Luke and Mark name three women. Luke says there were other women present too. Matthew says there were two women. John says there was just one. Paul doesn't mention any women at all. Well, of course not. He's a chauvinist, right? or so some have said who have not read Paul. So he doesn't mention any women at all. Well, that's weird. That's inconsistent. Matthew has women arriving at the tomb toward the dawn. Mark says they arrived very early, but then changes his tune and says when the sun had also risen. Luke says they arrived at early dawn. John says Mary Magdalene came while it was still dark. Well, which one was it? Come on, guys, get your story straight. It's easy. First of all, they would have to leave Bethany while it was dark to get up over the Mount of Olives and across to the tomb by first light. And there's a Greek word here. The word came also is translated went. Came and went are the same words, so it's very easy to say that, that Mary went from and came to And so it it works out, it fits just fine that they had to leave their homes. And By the way, well, but there were different groups of women. There's one here, there's two here, there's three here. Yeah, they didn't all live in the same place. They weren't all huddled in one spot. You need to think about this in real life terms, not cold, hard words on a page term, but real life terms that they were different people in different places coming to the tomb. Perhaps two met up, one went and met up with another and they then met up with these three and went back and then these two headed off this way and these went this way. This came a running, this one beat him. I mean, it's that kind of real life that was taking place that morning. But let's continue on with some of these they went to the tomb at dark, and they came to it at first light. Mark and Luke call the messengers at the tomb men. Matthew and John say they're angels. Well, which one was it? Angels throughout the scriptures when they appear to people just appear as men. So that's not a problem. Uh, Matthew and Mark mention there's just one. Luke and John say there were two. To which I say it depends on where you're standing. It depends on your perspective and on who saw what. Mark, Luke, and John put the angels inside the tomb. Matthew says the angel began outside the tomb and finished up inside the tomb. Okay, can't angels move? Matthew 28, verse nine tells us Jesus first appeared to several women who took hold of his feet and worshiped him. John only shares Mary Magdalene's personal experience of that. You know what? There's plenty of time and room and space for both to have occurred. That Mary stays behind weeping, the other women head on their way. Jesus appears to Mary, she grabs hold of him. He says, stop clinging to me, Mary. I haven't left yet. I'm right here. And then she goes on her way to tell the apostles and and Jesus appears then to the other women. It's very easy. All of this fits very easily. As to the appearances of Jesus to the 11, to the apostles, Matthew only records one and that's up in the Galilee. Luke only mentions one, that's in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And after that amazing traveling appearance on the road to Emmaus, that's when Luke mentions that Jesus appeared to the apostles, Paul pieces together a whole chronology of witnesses in order up to 500 people at one time. Does that undermine your faith in the story? See, here's the thing. For those who would say there are discrepancies between the accounts, It's like piecing together a jigsaw puzzle. All the pieces are here. Put it together. See, that's life. That's life. If this morning I said, okay, I have a little assignment for you, I'm going to have five of you write your experience of Resurrection Sunday service at the bridge. You're going to go to five separate rooms. You're going to sit down and just write out to the best of your recollection exactly what happened, exactly what you saw. Then we're going to get together and we're going to read those five accounts. Would they be precisely exact? Of course not. Five perspectives, five different people telling what they saw of the same event, same thing happening, but five people all telling what they saw. And that's what is true of all good biographies. No one biography stands alone and gets it all right. It gives perspectives. It puts as many pieces together as possible, but then you get another biography and another. And as you put together these witnesses, you get the full story. You get the full breadth of it. That's what makes for good biographies. Full agreement across the board would make us skeptical. If I picked up five biographies on Abraham Lincoln and every one of them read exactly the same, I'd say, someone got together on this one. Someone was comparing notes. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul were not comparing notes. They just wrote what they knew. They wrote what they had seen. They wrote, in sometimes like Luke's case, what other witnesses told them they had seen. They just wrote it down. And it's truth, and my friends, truth doesn't need cleaning up because truth is what it is. John Winham, in his book, Easter Enigma, writes, these resurrection stories exhibit in a remarkable way the well-known characteristics of accurate and independent reporting. For superficially, they may show great disharmony. But on close examination, the details gradually fall into place. They all do. They fall right into place. Because real life is never as tight as just one person's recollection or perspective. And that's why in our courts, we want a multiplicity of witnesses so that we can come to the truth. And that's what God gives us in the resurrection stories. Multiple perspectives to bring us to the truth. And by the way, and this is interesting to me, there is not a single written denial of the resurrection of Jesus, historically speaking, from an archaeological perspective, in the entire first century. Nobody disputed it. Or in the second century, or in the third century, or in the fourth century. Or in the fifth, you gotta get way down the line from when the resurrection of Jesus happened before someone started to be a critic and started to say perhaps it didn't take place at all. Non-believing Romans, Greeks, and Jewish historians in in the histories that we have recognize that this took place recognized, if nothing else, the claims, and there's no one who says, no, no, that didn't happen. I was there. I stood there at the tomb for 48 hours. No one came out. Nobody ever disputed it. And that's the stuff of truth, my friends. Not to mention the fact that the story was first proclaimed and declared and shared almost immediately, get this, in the city where it happened. It's not like they went somewhere else where no one really knew what had gone on and tried to spin up this tale. They just proclaimed the truth and there was nobody in the city who could deny that the body was gone, the tomb was empty, Jesus was risen. But my purpose this morning for all of that is really not proof because we can go over it and over it. I have spent many Resurrection Sundays trying to prove the resurrection And the reality is, I can give you all the proof in the world, but if you don't want to believe, you're not going to. If you don't want to accept the truth, you'll reject it. So I just repeat this statement the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only central to Christian faith, it is the only hope for life. It is the only hope. John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. So what I wanna do just with the rest of our time this morning is consider a couple of implications of the resurrection, just a couple of implications here. See, John chapter 14, verse 19, Jesus said on the night of his betrayal, said to the apostles, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. And that means now and then, now and then. Because I live, you will live also. That's now and then, Susan. Because I live, you will live also. That means right now. Because I live, you will live also means forever. It is, it is peace for now. It is hope for the future. And neither one of those depends on what I've done in my past. No, neither depend on the life that I've lived, my good outweighing my bad or my bad outweighing my good. That's not the issue here. My life, both now presently and to come eternally, it rests in the resurrection of Jesus which is why this is so important. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. The phrase there is elpidazosan. You should memorize that and share that with someone at work tomorrow. I've got elpidazosan. And they'll go, great. Did you buy that at a cannabis store? What are you talking about? Elpida Zosan, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what that phrase means, living hope, it's hope alive. It's hope that's vital and vibrant and vigorous and active and blessed. And is that your hope? So I'm talking to you Christians for a minute here. Do you have a living hope? Is your hope in Jesus? Does it energize your faith? Does it activate your love? Or are you just getting by one day to the next, just making it through? Are you maybe not a believer and you're putting off your inevitable mortality? You're gonna die. And you can try to ignore that fact, but it's gonna come. Or maybe you're one who thinks that faith is for the foolish. And I've seen it. I remember the very first Sunday that Spencer showed up, and some of you guys remember Spencer from 17, 18 years ago. I remember the first Sunday he showed up because his wife made him go to church. <laughs> and he sat in the back with his arms crossed, glaring at me like, you're not gonna teach me anything, And I think it was a few weeks later that Spencer was in the pond getting baptized. That's not because of anything I said. It's because faith came. But there are those who this morning think, you know, this whole Easter thing is just foolish. This Christian resurrection thing is its really for the weak. I'd say no offense, but I might mean just a little offense here. The Bible says the opposite of that. The Bible says in Psalm 10 verse three, the wicked boasts of his heart's desire and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Psalm 14, verse one, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Bible even says, if you reject the existence of God, you are a fool. I didn't say that. And if that bugs or offends you, That's what God says. You're a fool to think that there is no God. And you might say, oh, come on, Rick, aren't there many paths to God? Don't all rivers lead to the same sea? Yeah, I agree. That might shock a few of you. I agree, there are many paths to God. In fact, I will say all paths lead to God. They do, but hear me out. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, six. To the Father means received as the Father's children. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but born of God. So Jesus says, the only way to come to the Father is through me, one way. And to the person who says, well, all paths lead to God, I, again, I agree, because born of God or not, all will come to God. All will face God like Shalom. Shalom Auslander. So I don't know if he's Jewish or Australian or both. Shalom Auslander uh, is composed a piece that is in the New York Times, I don't know if you saw this, this morning, uh, a nice little opinion piece published on uh, Easter Sunday. Um, His guest essay heavily criticizing God on Good Friday and at the start of Passover. Shalom Auslander composed a piece insisting that this Passover, he's Jewish by the way, we should stop paying attention to God. That's his call to the world. Quote, in this time of war and violence, of oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else. We pass over God. And he began before, uh, he began with that, and then he began to claim that God is hateful, full of brutality, and if he was mortal, would be dragged to the Hague, because the Hague is such a bastion of justice. (laughs) Alslander criticized God whose wrath and plagues harnessed against the Egyptians during the original Passover story from the book of Exodus, remind him of what the Russians are doing to the Ukrainians right now. Okay. According to the author, Israel's ancient enemies were troubling, but just as troubling, and even more so today in light of the brutal slaughter taking place in Ukraine, were the plagues themselves. And he goes on and on, chastising God, going after God, He said, that's why war in Ukraine is happening. Perhaps now as missiles rain down and the dead are discovered in mass graves, it's a good time to stop emulating this hateful God, he says. Wow. Completely missing the message of Passover, the God who rescues from brutal slavery, the God who brings his people out the God who took time to declare to all of Egypt that all of your gods are false gods and will bring you only death. But I'm the God of the living, the God who took nails in his hands and feet and a thorn of, a crown of thorns on his head and a spear in his side and died in your place, in my place, and in Shalom Auslander's place that we might have salvation forever. Hateful God? Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, and we address this a bit on Good Friday. God will judge. God must judge because he is absolutely righteous and absolute perfect righteousness cannot let bad deeds go unpunished. And so Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil, Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that's every one of us here this morning, and that's every one of us who populate Oak Harbor and Anacortes and Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island and the entire Northwest and the world. We will all, every last one of us, come before him with whom we have to do. You gotta deal with God. All paths lead to him. Ultimately, every person will stand before God, one way or the other. either come through Jesus to the Father or you stand before God on your own. And that's your choice, he's left you that option. No matter what road we've taken or choices we've made, we will all arrive at the presence of God. Now, your resurrection is inevitable. The question is, when will it happen and what will be the result? let me explain. Now go back to John chapter 11. And don't worry, we're only dealing with a couple of verses here. (laughs) John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, he says. And I call this moment the glorious collision. This is a glorious collision. It is the seventh and last sign in the Gospel of John. This is the last time that we hear of a miracle of Jesus prior to his resurrection. Seven signs in the Gospel, and we come to this final one, and it's the resurrection of Lazarus. You could call it the great sign. All the other signs are remarkable and amazing, and they are telling of the nature of Jesus as God in the flesh, but this one blows the mind. The great sign, the seventh sign. But it's the glorious collision because this sign runs headlong into the fifth I am statement of Jesus. Out of seven I am statements right here, Jesus speaks with divinely deliberate impact. I am the resurrection and the life. And you and I are so blessed to hear him say that because my friends, he spoke it to Martha. He didn't speak it to the crowds. He didn't shout it from the midst of Jerusalem or from atop the Mount of Olives or or in the Galilee, over 5,000 people gathered. He said to one woman whose brother had just died, I am the resurrection and the life. It's me. It's by me. Martha, it's through me. Martha's just lost her only brother, her provider, her protector, her friend. But Martha is a woman of great faith. I love what she says in response to him in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the son of God, he who comes into the world. She she believed She believed, and even if you look back at verse 23, Jesus had said to her, your brother will rise again. He meant immediately, she didn't know that. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That is such a Christian response. Maybe I should temper that a bit. That is such a church person's response. We will see him in the sweet by and by. Until then, we're just gonna slog through this miserable world. Someday, we'll see him. Someday, my loved ones who have passed, maybe if I'm really good, someday we'll get there. For now, it's nothing but misery. Man, check your faith, brother and sister. This day is now. We have hope now. But she said, I, I, I believe, I believe. She, she was a believer, but Jesus immediately responds by saying, look, I am the only source of resurrection. I'm the one and only source. It's me, resurrection and life. And I ask you this morning, how else are you gonna get it? How do you think you're gonna get resurrected? Who else is gonna dig you out, prop you up and breathe life in your immortal body? This is not Weekend at Bernie's. how are you gonna get out of the grave? I mean, really? Well, I think, you know, after it all said and done, after I die, something, I don't know what, but something will happen. Man, you're gonna, you're gonna put your eternity on perhaps maybe at some point something will happen. Really? I, to me, nothing is more foolish. You're gonna rest your hope on what if? No, no, no. Jesus Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said it right there. It can't be any more clear. And I'm telling you this morning, if you want life and you wanna have the hope of resurrection is in Jesus. He made it all about himself. It's not in a creed. It is not in a church membership. It is not in your traditions. It is in Jesus Christ. You come to him. And he says, I will resurrect you and I will be your life. That is now and forever. It's Jesus By the way, Jesus knew something, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but something wonderful about Lazarus that we now realize by implication. We've just heard Martha proclaim, before anything happens here, Martha proclaims, I know you're the Messiah. That's big. I know you're Messiah. Martha was close friends with Jesus. Martha and Mary and Lazarus, Jesus stayed at their house in Bethany whenever he went to Jerusalem. They were buds. They hung out. They had meals together. They walked together. They told jokes together. She knew him as human as you could know anybody. And she declared, right here, I know you're the Messiah. Wow, Martha, that's awesome. Woman's got amazing faith, but you know what? So did Lazarus. Before he died, Lazarus believed Jesus to be Messiah and God. How do you know? Look at verse 25 again. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the immediate implication is he who had believed in Jesus would live even though he had died. That's Lazarus. He believed and then he died. And there's great truth here. And note this here, here's one of the two quick truths. Okay, I'll remove the word quick. One of the two truths I want you to get this morning, number one is this, the power of resurrection operates by the expectation of faith. That's your part in it. Jesus has done everything else, but the power of resurrection, his power to resurrect you, operates by your expectation of faith. Faith the Bible tells us is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1. Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead you will be saved. So so what I'm saying here is that the power to be resurrected back to life that is God's power no question. And we're talking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in concert, all, by the way, active in Jesus' resurrection. But Father, Son, Holy Spirit will resurrect you to life. Your part is faith that allows his favor to flow. Your faith allows his favor to flow. I have good news for you. If you came this morning, if you were dragged to church this morning, you really didn't wanna come and you're kinda concerned that they were gonna coerce you into doing something or believing something, I don't have that power. And do you realize that God withdrew that power? That he said, you know what? I'm gonna let you make the choice. I'm gonna let you believe in me. If you wanna believe, I'll give you faith and more faith than you can possibly imagine. But but I'm gonna let you decide to trust me. And the moment you trust me, the resurrection power will flow into your life. But if you keep that door closed, I'm not gonna push it on you. The power of resurrection operates by the expectation of faith. And Jesus used the death of Lazarus as an immediate example of the expectation of faith that led to a resurrected life. Lazarus believed and was resurrected to life, and Jesus is painting a picture here. He uses his friend's death for a teaching. Now, don't worry. Lazarus is not gonna feel used. He's gonna feel pretty good about the whole thing by the time it's all said and done. In fact, over in chapter 12, verse 10, it tells us the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, Because, listen, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus on account of Lazarus. And I'll tell you, it wasn't because he was just sitting there breathing. It's because he was declaring, I was dead and now I'm alive. We might say, I was blind and now I see. I was lame and now I walk. I was deaf and now I hear, I was dead and now I'm alive, I was lost and now I'm found. And it was the declaration of Lazarus that was bringing faith to all these other Jews and causing the chief priest to want to kill him right along with Jesus. He became an immediate witness. And Jesus, it's wonderful. He taps into the circumstance of this heart-wrenching death of his dear friend who he loved and even wept over. We'll see that in the chapter later. Not Not this morning. But he, he used the circumstance to bring out this eternal truth that the power of resurrection operates by the expectation of faith. Do you expect to be raised? Do you expect a life beyond this one? I'll tell you what, as Lazarus lay there dying and Jesus delayed his coming, I now know that Lazarus expected Jesus to come that Lazarus assumed his Lord and friend would show up to heal him. That's why they sent word to Jesus in the first place. Lazarus is sick and dying, come to him. Jesus waited four days. But Lazarus' expectation was not disappointed just because Jesus didn't get there post haste. Just because the miracle happened post-mortem, it doesn't matter to Jesus. He made it happen. So again, I ask you this morning, what is your expectation of life? you gonna die and go to sleep? Bible doesn't say that. Or are you gonna die and resurrect? The Bible is clear on it. What's your expectation? Psalm 1610, David said, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures. David writes, forever. David had a full expectation of resurrection on into eternal life, and he will know it. What about Paul, 2 Timothy 4 8? In the future, he says, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. He says that with absolute assurance and extends the promise to you and me, saying, Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We've been over this. Brothers and sisters, do you love his appearing? Do you live life like you love his appearing? See, that's a living hope, a vibrant faith, an energetic faith, an excited faith that is not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus wherever you go. This should change our behavior. And I marvel, and let me just focus on Rick. I marvel at the days when my behavior sits unchanged by this amazing story, by this living hope. Do you love his appearing? Do you know that there are pleasures forever? Revelation 1.18 Jesus says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. I got them. You want out? Tragically, Yerus' daughter, the widow's son, and Lazarus all died again. But Jesus says, verse 26, And everyone who lives, what he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he's talking about, listen to me, everlasting life. I wanna break this down biblically for you. I know what time it is. But here's the second statement, second statement. The power of resurrection operates for eternal life and eternal death. It's very simple. The power of resurrection operates by the expectation of your faith. Do you expect to be resurrected? Do you trust him to do it? And secondly, the power of resurrection operates for eternal life and for eternal death because the Bible is very clear and you gotta really stick with me on this. There are two deaths and two resurrections. Two deaths and two resurrections. What do you mean? What do you mean? The first death is physical death. It's the physical body, everybody up to present day who has died, that's the physical death. They've all died the first death. That's the death that is expected for all people, the physical death, death of the physical body. The second death, you do not wanna die because the Bible calls it spiritual death. It's a spiritual death. The first resurrection, which if you hope in Jesus, follows the first death. First resurrection is eternal life, forever. You're a part of the first resurrection. You will live forever with Jesus, pleasures untold, loving is appearing. He has the keys of death and Hades. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is to judgment and to the second death. I'm gonna read this quickly to you. This is Revelation chapter 20, verse six, where John writes, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years and that's just the beginning of eternal life that first resurrection but there's also an eternal death that follows judgment remember what I said a little bit earlier all paths do lead to God no question everybody's going to come before God with whom they have to do the question again is how will you arrive? You're either gonna come through, the, through Jesus to the Father for eternal life in the first resurrection or you're gonna come to God for judgment in the second resurrection. And the Bible is clear on that as well. All roads lead to God, but only one brings you before him as a child, clean, redeemed, forgiven, justified, and eternal by Jesus but if you decide to go your own way, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I can't believe I'm reading this on Easter Sunday. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and the small, standing before the throne. They have been resurrected for judgment. This is the second resurrection. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, not the book of life, because their names aren't in the book of life. Their names are in the books of deeds. So they're gonna be judged on what they did, good or bad. So you have that option. You do have that option to say, I'm just gonna wait until it's all said and done. I'm gonna die. And if there's a resurrection, there's something to this, I will stand before God and say, all right, let's talk about my life. Here are the good things I did. And you know, what's amazing is people will say, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. You know, yeah, I've done some things in my life. You ever notice how many people compare themselves to Hitler? Well, you gotta pick someone to compare yourself to. No one's as bad as Hitler, I'll give you that one. Someone might say, well, I'm not like that guy who gunned down people in the, in the New York subway this last week. That's, I, I'm, I, I've never done something like that. I've sinned. Sure, I've done some bad things, you know. Here's the carpet, sweep, sweep, sweep. No big deal, but I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. You know what? Whether you're comparing yourself to Hitler or Billy Graham, you are comparing yourself to the wrong person. How do you measure up to Jesus Christ? That's the standard. That is the standard of righteousness, How do I measure up to Jesus Christ? Now, if you can stand before God and say, I am as perfect as Jesus, I will step back out of your way. (laughs) Well, please, (laughs) after you, sir. Are you as perfect as Jesus? Oh, come on, no one's as perfect as the Bible presents Jesus to be. Exactly, that's exactly right. And because of that, the sea, verse 13, gave up. The dead which were in it, and the dead, and, and death, and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is, my friends, that's the second death. The second resurrection leads to the second death. Second resurrection is a resurrection to judgment. You don't want to rise in the second resurrection. You want to rise in the first resurrection because the first resurrection saves you from the first death, which is just physical death. Worst possible case scenario is you might die in your body, but being raised in the first resurrection, you are raised to everlasting, eternal life. Why would I share this and rain on someone's holiday today? because this is life or death. This is not a hollow piece of candy. This is life or death that we are talking about. But listen one more time to what Jesus said. There's another amazing application rooted in his words back in John verse 25 of chapter 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So in other words, some will die, believers in Jesus, having faith in Jesus, and we've seen it for 2,000 years. People have died with faith in Jesus Christ and a wonderful expectation of first resurrection to eternal life. People like Stephen, Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 59, they were stoning him, and he called on the Lord, and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Man, that sounds like Jesus on the cross. And having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen expected to be resurrected. 2 Timothy chapter four, verse six, Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come and Paul expected to be resurrected. 2 Peter chapter one, verse 14, Peter says, the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, but Peter expected to be resurrected. All of these are called the dead in Christ. They die in Christ, they will raise, which is what Jesus says. Who, who believes in me will live even if he dies. So it's not a contradiction, it's a reality. Even if you die, if you die in faith in me, you're gonna live. Their bodies may be in the ground, their ashes in an urn, but they didn't try to earn eternal life. There's your pun, Mike, right there. They didn't try to earn eternal life, they just believed in Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. First Timothy 4.16 tells us, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And Jesus says that's what's gonna happen. If you believe in me, even if you die, you're gonna live and get this. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, and you believers get this. There is a people, perhaps many of us sitting in this room, that's what I'm holding out for, who will never taste death. Those who live and believe in him, that will never die. What are you talking about, Rick? Then we who are alive, 1 Thessalonians four seventeen, and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Some of you may be sitting there going, I knew Rick was gonna take us to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. I just knew we were gonna end up there. That's what he does. Well, that's because the Bible says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. My friends, listen closely here. Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. But to those who believe, he will soon say, come up here. Revelation chapter four, verse one, come up here, he will shout, and we who are alive at that moment will be caught up and will never die. And I really like the sound of that. Now, if you've lost someone dear to you recently or or in past years and you're like, oh, wow, bummer for them. No, actually bummer for you because even if you're raptured right out of your life, they get to go first. The dead in Christ rise first and then we're caught up. So either way, it's a really good picture that if you believe in him and you die, you will live. But if you believe in him and you live, you will never die. It goes both ways. Come forth, Lazarus, he says, but come up here, he says, to you and to me. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the devil will be raised imperishable, and we will forever be changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. And in both cases, the only way to come out of death or out of this temporary life and into eternal life is to hear the voice of Jesus by faith. Lazarus heard, come forth. We will hear, come up here. And it is his voice, that calls us to life because he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. This Easter morning, don't settle. Please don't settle for the hollowness of Of what the day has become for so many. Don't settle for any road or any river or any path. We'll just take whatever. Catch stride with Jesus this morning. He is the resurrection, He is the life. And by the way, He doesn't say, I was the resurrection or I will be the life. He says, I am, which is for now and forever. He never met a funeral, He didn't interrupt and he wants to interrupt yours. And I say, bring it on, Lord. Will you let him interrupt the possibility of your death for everlasting life?